Good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to be here with you this morning, and I thank you for the hospitality you have shown me uh, just in welcoming me here to this pulpit, because anytime there is a guest preacher, it can be like a box of chocolates. You really never know what you are going to get. Um, and so I appreciate that, that welcome, the welcome that I have received. Um, and thank you, Lawrence and Anna, for the ways that you have already preached a sermon. Uh, you know, the, the struggle of any preacher is the fact that oftentimes you as a congregation and worship leaders end up preaching the sermon better than we ever can. Uh, and so I thank you for the ways in which you have, you have preached that sermon this morning. As I was preparing for this sermon, I was searching for inspiration. My mind was going in about 10 different directions, and as is often the case when I prepare sermons, I felt like each one of my illustrations was essential to getting the point across. Thankfully, for both myself and for all of you, I found some inspiration. Otherwise, we would be sitting here until well afternoon, and many of us, including myself, would have probably left the service wondering what on earth I was talking about. I found that inspiration right in the bulletin. As I scoured and scanned it, making sure I knew the order of service, I quickly took in the theme, Integrity. Perhaps the theme might help me narrow down my wandering thoughts into something focused and accessible. I tried to fit my idea into the constraints of my understandings of integrity, and I got nothing. I had illuminating ideas on hospitality and how to hone hospitality within communities, but there was no cohesive continuum on which to present those ideas. And then... I read the description of the theme, the practice of refusing to hide. There it was, inspiration. The chorus of Chicago's You're the Inspiration played as I began to type. Here we all are, gathered this beautiful Sunday morning in the sanctuary of the Durango UU Fellowship. Everything about this place announces that this sanctuary is what its title suggests a safe space, a place of warm welcome, a place where people of different beliefs, backgrounds, and stories can come without having to hide those parts of themselves that are ingrained in who they are and how they want to be in the world. The church should be a place of such radical welcome. Perhaps part of our refusing to hide part of the integral building blocks of our existence is to find places of hospitality. But cultivating such a culture of hospitality is no easy task. Oftentimes, the cultivation creates moments of uncertainty, vulnerability, and change. And I think that because of those realities of cultivation are present, they call members of our community, they call us to be constantly open to new understandings, and to seeing our blind spots. Amos Young is a Christian theologian who has written extensively on the understanding of the Holy Spirit, and perhaps more importantly, how the spirit of the divine manifests in different religious traditions. His most recent book is about hospitality, and he makes the point that when we talk about hospitality, we often only get half of it. 
while welcoming those who are other or different into our space as part of hospitable human interaction, it is not the truest form of hospitality. Because when we invite those who we consider different into our space, we still control the framework of that invitation and that space. For lack of a better term, we are still in charge. And so, Young argues, the truest form of hospitality is actually about being a guest as opposed to a host. Those dynamics then completely transform the space where this place might once have been a space of welcome when it becomes a space where those with power and privilege give up that need to control and in turn empower the voices of the oppressed and the outcast and those voices take the lead. Then this space becomes a place of radical hospitality. It becomes a space where all people can come and refuse to hide. Hospitality is nothing new. And this idea of radical hospitality is also not new. Radical hospitality is foundational to many of the belief systems that have existed. The tribal peoples of the ancient Near East all valued this process of welcoming the stranger. It is no surprise then that calls to hospitality are found in the holy texts of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. But it is not isolated to the ancient Near East. Hinduism equates refusing hospitality to one who comes to your door as an unpardonable act. While Buddhism associates the treatment of the stranger with one's own relationship with the divine. The reality is that much of the belief systems around the world have some form of hospitality at their core. And in many cases, the understandings of hospitality presented are also understandings of a redistribution. Much like Amos Young reflects, the practice of true hospitality redistributes power and control. In many of the stories of hospitality, the world over, the visitor and stranger are given places of honor because this person might be the divine in disguise. Unfortunately, I think this practice of hospitality as a redistributive act has been lost in our modern day practice. Giving up control and allowing the movement of the divine might be where learning and compassion happen, but it is also where discomfort and shame can occur. And again, this practice of radical hospitality is not easy. As Rumi's poem, The Guest House, demonstrates, it means encountering emotions and discomfort and welcoming them. Perhaps a personal illustration here might help in explaining the hard work of hospitality. When I was in seminary, I took a theology course and we were discussing Latinoa liberation theology. My theology professor asked a question about the necessities of those theological understandings according to the culture that they arose from. In my ignorance and arrogance, I raised my hand and spouted off my racist and sexist understandings of machismo and a culture of domination by men, to which my re professor responded, oh right, because white men do not have issues in regards to sexism and abuse. I remember that day vividly. My embedded racist ideas had been called out. I was exposed and I wanted to hide. But my professor did not let me hide. Instead, she continued to teach. 
I remember that day because my racist ideas were called out, but also because once they were called out, I had the choice to engage or to run away. In the words of Rumi, I welcomed and entertained those feelings of discomfort and shame. I learned that day that my desires to be anti-racist and anti-sexist needed to be met with discomforting realities that as a cisgender white male, I had to be willing to learn, to be challenged, and to be uncomfortable. My professor would not let me hide, and I had to practice some radical hospitality in order to truly offer a space where other people felt safe enough to refuse hiding. And the reality of radical hospitality is this. I am not done yet. There will be more opportunities for me to explore my pride, my power, and my privilege. And at each opportunity, I will once again have the choice to run away or the choice to refuse hiding. John Paul Lederach is professor of international peacebuilding at the University of Notre Dame. In 2018, he wrote an Advent Manifesto where he reflects on many different topics, from the violence we currently find ourselves in to the divisive disintegration of our culture into dichotomies where no one seems capable of bridging gaps. And so we stay amidst the circles of people who agree with our particular points of view. In this manifesto, he talks about a conversation he had with Father Nellis Tebe. Tebe, a priest and peace activist who sought peace and reconciliation between Indonesia and his home of Papua, recounts his father taking him to the jungle and instilling this wisdom. Always remember, Nellis, the forest accepts all people. John Paul Lederach takes this wisdom and applies it to the Saba trees of Colombia. The Saba tree grows large, hundreds of feet high with an extensive canopy and can live to be 200 years old. In Colombia, a country trampled by horrific violence, the Saba tree grows. Under its shade, many have taken shelter. From paramilitaries and guerrilla fighters to those fleeing from burnt homes. There in the jungles of Colombia, under the shade of the Saba tree, is a place where none refuse to hide. The forest accepts all people. And John Paul Lederach ends his Advent Manifesto with this pondering haiku. What if churches had the Saba's patience with wide shade for all to sit. Perhaps that is what I am most inspired to leave you with this morning. What if Durango Unitarian Universalist Fellowship had the Seba's patience and offered shade for all of us, even those emotions and parts of us we might feel are most broken? Perhaps for you, Durango Unitarian Universalist Fellowship is already that place. And if it is, I encourage you to look and see who might still be excluded. If you are someone who has power and privilege like myself, I encourage you to look at those blind spots within yourself and see how you might relinquish that power and privilege and journey towards discomfort and radical hospitality. If you are someone still looking for a place of radical hospitality where you no longer have to hide or you have been outcasted and oppressed because you have refused to hide, I want to first say that I am sorry for the ways that I have contributed to that pain, whether knowingly or unknowingly. And I hope and pray 
that I too might have the same as patience and let each and every one of you teach me what it truly means to refuse to hide and be a place and person of radical hospitality. Perhaps in the end, John Paul Lederach is right. Nothing works unless we can surround people with enough care that they can pause the jittery soul. I hope and pray that Durango Unitarian Universalist Fellowship is a place of such care and hospitality. And where it is not, I hope the discomfort and vulnerability of that reality helps us to engage, to learn, and to become more and more like the Saba tree. Amen. like some folks are here for the discussion and some folks are here connecting and socializing. It's all good. It's all good. Usually what happens is that folks trickle in as we're discussing and reflecting. And I might say this again later when more folks are here, but I'll also say it now. If anyone is not aware, our reflection time is recorded and uh, posted on the website along with the sermon. And so I always feel like it's fair to let people know that um, when you speak, your your voice and your comments and <laughs> thoughts and feelings and questions will be no pressure at all out there on the interwebs. So um, as I was uh, sitting, reflecting, perhaps during the prayer and meditation piece, um, you know how this goes, right? I was sitting there and I was like, oh, 20 minutes ago, did I introduce Reverend Jacob? Did I remember to tell everyone that he's the chaplain at Mercy Regional Medical Center? Did I say that at the beginning of the service? I did. Good. Because I could, I could not remember for the life of me <laughs> whether or not I had said that. Um, so is there anything that you would like to start out with, or should we just start out with comments and questions from folks who are here? Yeah. Okay. Okay, I will bring the mic around to anyone who wants to share. But I loved your reference with the tree and your inclusion of that. It's just, um, you know, we take a lot of that for granted, and I'm really glad that you brought that up because we should not. So thank you so much for that. What's the name of that tree again? It's called a Seba tree, C-E-I-B-A. And it grows in, in rainforests all over, not just... Columbia, but the, the reference that John Paul Lederach makes is specifically to Columbia mm -hmm. because they planted one uh, in, I want to say like, I can't remember the exact year, but 1856, somewhere around there, uh, when Columbia abolished slavery. Wow. And, and so he draws a reference to that. Wow. Um, now that I'm standing back here, this, this feels really awkward. If there's anyone who's interested in moving forward, uh, please do. And, you know, challenge by choice. I'm not going to make you do that. <laughs> um, and the, the manifesto that he wrote, what was the name of that manifesto? It's, it's just called his Advent Manifesto. He wrote it for a project that's called On Being. Mm -hmm. um, so it's part of this website. They do podcasts. Um, I'm familiar. Kind of, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he wrote it for that. Mm -hmm. And it's a uh, hundred different, just kind of paragraph reflections. There's a lot of different stuff that he reflects on mm -hmm. in it. But mm -hmm. yeah. On being has come up before in discussions after services here at <laughs> UUFD. 
Who else has something they would like to share? Thank you. Uh, I might just, first of all, I would like to say thank you. And um, for those who don't know, I've been in the hospital a couple times and I've been with this gentleman because he came to my room and I suggest everybody look him up, but don't go to the hospital for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I want to say two, I like to reference the jungle. Oh, the jungle accepts all people. Mm. I thought that was pretty nice, man. Something to remember. Yeah, yeah. And actually, one of the, the congregation came up to me afterwards and said, that's true of all nature. And so, you, you know, the, this idea that all of nature accepts all people um, and, and the importance of that uh, and the importance of uh, what you all do as far as getting out into nature and experiencing that, the fact that nature accepts us all as we are doesn't ask us to change. There were a couple times during your sermon where I wish I had been able to take notes. I was like, ooh, that's a really cool phrase that I'm going to forget. Yeah, well done. Thank you. Well, I, like, wanted to hijack your whole sermon. <laughs> um, I, co I contacted the border about sponsor whether they needed people to sponsor and talk and found out that yes, hundred you know there's literally many many people who've passed their credible fear interview and aren't able to be released because there's no sponsor, and so they wait months for their court date incarcerated. Um, and Dottie Matthews, I some, somehow I got connected to Dottie Matthews, who's a retired UU minister in Wisconsin, and we both got really <laughs> worked up and started talking about this should be. Everyone should know how to do this. And she was developing this idea of congregational sponsorship, and the UU has taken it on nationally. So just so, so yeah, you yeah. know, um, what it would mean for us is that if, you know, say I want to sponsor someone, it's pretty daunting to take on because it's not just housing them. They have to get back and forth to complete their asylum request and then to get approved for a work visa, and that they can't work until they have that. So they have no way to pay for their food lodging or a doctor or a dentist or whatever they would need. And so it's not a simple thing to take on. And, of course, being UUs, they've already developed a huge handbook of what's involved, which will make you never want to do it. Honestly, it just scared me more. <laughs> um, and at this point, I'm like, I am taking someone. I will be applying before the end of February, whether we decide to do it or not as a congregation, because it's taking too long. Um, and I'm impatient, and I can't. For me, it's, you know, what you talked about today just fits so much. It is a vulnerable thing to do, and it is scary, but I can't say, I can't not do it. I mean, I can't just sit here. It's just making me crazy. So if anybody's interested, it unfortunately was not in the bulletin today or in the newsletter, despite having been submitted. So something happened with our immigration team on that, but... Um, we're meeting Thursday at 1 if you want more information. I won't take up more time about it here. But it's a travesty what's happening, and I, um, I feel really wholehearted about that, the need for us to participate in this national effort to at least drum up some sponsorships so some people can get out if they have this. Oh, so we had one meeting in November, and I invite, I have friends at other churches, so I actually had people from Sacred Heart, because they have a lot of Spanish speakers. I had someone from St. Mark's on 3rd Avenue, and Debbie, the minister that was like, yes, 
Now, that doesn't mean her whole congregation feels that way, but she does. Um, and then uh, Wanda and um, John, Wanda Ellingson and John Conti, um, they are Spanish speakers with an empty house, who go to Christ the King. Um, and then I invited the Methodist church. We had somebody from there. So, uh, it, and, and it doesn't mean all those congregations will participate, but they have people who are interested. So for sure we're going to have a community team. You know, and maybe that's better if it's a community team of people. Um, but I, I would love it. I would be proud to have our UU be one of the UU congregations that officially does this. It just takes time to do things officially <laughs> that I don't want people sitting in jail waiting for. So mm. I'm in. I'm jumping off the cliff. And if anybody wants to have my back, let me know. So my th- one thing about the asylum is that um, it doesn't, Give, just so that y'all know, it doesn't give people permanent residency. It gives them the opportunity to be here to work towards that, but it's not a guarantee. Um, I kind of equate the effort to the same effort it takes to support Rosa in sanctuary. But from what I've learned from Liza, it's that much of a commitment, especially before they can get a work permit. So one of the thoughts I had during your sermon about the radical hospitality of, of bringing, of welcoming people that are different from you and get, letting them have power and say, um, and you did make mention about, um, white supremacy culture and that kind of thing. And and one thing that's a challenge working with Rosa is that, you know, coming up against that. You know, most of us are um, just white people trying to help Rosa and giving her the power to say, well, I want to do it. I want to do this. I want to do that. And I want to do it this way. And it may not be my way. And and it's not the way I went through college learning and, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, you know, kind of tweaks, tweaks me sometimes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's very hard. It's very hard to uh, engage in, in that, to engage those feelings of discomfort um, and to, to not get defensive um, you know, that, that's been one of my things with, with anything that comes up where I have a blind spot or a bias um, that all of a sudden it's called out in me and I really want to get defensive. And, and, but the best way to engage that is to then just ask further questions. You know, that's part of what I do in chaplaincy and we, as well is just recognize, oh, I'm, I'm reacting to something, but instead of speaking to that, just explore with them or explore uh, their story um, in in a way that that helps them to feel welcome because my defensiveness is only going to help them to close up or say oh yeah I had a reason for not trusting you to be here um, and so it is it's very difficult it is a very difficult thing to kind of see that and see these differences in culture and see how our culture runs up against it and to be open and willing to hear other people's voices. And just to clarify, Nancy, I'm guessing that most folks here know who Rosa is, but it's possible they don't. So Rosa Sabido, is that her last name? 
has been in sanctuary in the, just correct me if I'm wrong, in, in the Methodist church in Mancus for how many days now? Yeah, that she hasn't been able to leave that property and that the community at that church and then communities around southwest Colorado or the Four Corners region are also joining and supporting her, right? Okay. So um, so my question, actually, it's kind of in keeping with what's been talked about, but it's kind of an offshoot as well. So um, I, I wanted to ask you know, your perspective on how to deal with it when you do come across somebody who is automatically defensive. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm, um, you're probably aware of, you know, hashtag not all men, mm-hmm. where anytime something mm-hmm. sexist comes up and then all of a sudden, you know, all these voices are raised of, well, not all men treat women like that or not all men da-da-da-da. And it's like, no, not all men do, but some do, which is why we're talking about it. Um, but it, it, Generally, whenever that tends to happen, when, when you know, you get that hashtag not all men, what happens is that the women tend to get more aggressive. And we're like, no, this is real and this is valid and we mm-hmm. want to talk about it. Um, but that just seems to not get a message clearly across. Um, so how can we make a more hospitable place mm-hmm. <laughs> for that kind of discussion? Yeah, yeah. Um it's it's really really difficult because defensiveness automatically closes a conversation um it, it's hard to keep that conversation going once that defensiveness comes up because then we're just focused on that and we're not focused on everything that's that's coming up and and so in these instances um you know i've kind of said that it's it's for for me the person of power and and privilege to sit there and say that there's a different way and open up the conversation and be vulnerable because it's really easy for me to sit there and say well when somebody gets defensive you should just engage in conversation but the reality is is that it's probably tweaking something some kind of experience or something that has happened to those uh, those people, whatever their experience is. And so it's really for, and, and that's part of the problem, is that it, it, you have to find people who are in power and privilege that are willing to do that, to do that hard work of vulnerability and sit there and say, okay, yeah, hashtag not all men, but you know, that doesn't mean that we can't fix things and that we, that we haven't contributed to it in some way even if we haven't contributed to the specific actions, there's all kinds of things that I do that feed into the privilege that I have been given. And so it's about those people that have been given power and privilege to sit there and say, this is is where my privilege comes into effect, and so I can speak to that. Um, And hopefully that opens the conversation. Sometimes it doesn't. And, and, you know, I, I don't want this to be a thing where people who have been uh, oppressed and outcasted continue to get that because they're trying to have these conversations and they're trying to listen, but the other people on the other side aren't listening, which is why it's so important for allies, for people with power and privilege to come alongside and help in that conversation because I don't want more people to be oppressed and outcasted due to trying to have this conversation. 
so in our congregation, we have a wonderful opportunity to explore the, these um, these very things in, in terms of what what can we each as individuals do. Um, we can uh, purchase the book that's available, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. We're having a congregational discussion of this. The first discussion is March 8th. And um, uh, read that book and explore the issues within there because that, that's exactly what it does is, is uh, calls into question, um, or well, not, not to question, but for, for some people to begin to recognize that um, there, that race does matter, um, that um, white people have um, a certain privilege that we just um, take for granted. And um, what I'm learning is that when we take something for granted, that usually indicates there's privilege. We haven't had to think about that before. We haven't had to think about our whiteness um, for those of us who are white and um, the privileges that are attached to that. So um, I, I invite you all to participate in um, the series of discussions. We're going to have a, one discussion each month. The first one I said, March 8th. And um, so it's a deep exploration that we'll share with each other. And I, I also think that, um, so just a little bit about my background. My dad is a uh, retired Mennonite pastor. Um, and so he he often one of the things that I grew up on is is this idea that the Bible is a food driven book, um, and so one of my ideas as far as um, hospitality and having these conversations is the idea that having people for meals is important to this. There's there's something that happens around a table when all of you put your feet under the same table that that there is an opening for, for deeper conversation. And sometimes what that means is that we have to do it one-on-one -on -one or in these small groups where it's personal things because that's where the trust is built up. It's, it's really hard to not engage on the kind of social media part of it. Um, but my kind of understanding is that we're not going to change people on social media. You're, you know, we're going to do it in, in these small areas with these, with people, with relationship. Relationship is this huge part of actually um, welcoming others in and, and conversing in a way that is welcoming to each other. Um, and so, so that's another thing that I, I kind of think needs to happen in these conversations. Thank you. Um, that book group about the book White Fragility is the book group that I mentioned in the very beginning of the service. So thank you for bringing it up more specifically. And um, and when does that start, by the way? March 8th. March 8th, March 8th is the first uh, meeting, and they're all listed in the bulletin mm -hmm, and on our website. And I'm just wondering if you could share a little more of your background. Reverend Jacob and I met at a coffee shop. Um, a couple of weeks ago to talk about the service and get to know each other. And um, I opened up with a question, something very similar to, tell me about your theological background. And then we went on a much, um, yeah, I, I got to listen to your answer to that question. And I was, um, I was really um, just happy that you shared with me and it was interesting to me. And I wonder if you could mention that and, and, 
and talk about how that led to hospital chaplaincy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like I said, I'm I'm the I'm actually a fourth generation pastor's son, um, and my dad is a retired Mennonite uh, pastor. Um, I went to seminary at Palmer Theological Seminary in. Um, well, it's now in St. David's, Pennsylvania, but when I was there, it was in Philadelphia. Um, and that is an American Baptist seminary. Uh, coming out of seminary, I explored a bunch of different places to get ordained. Uh, I was the pastor at a United Methodist church through weird circumstances um, because I was never ordained in the Methodist church, but because of all of these weird circumstances, I became the pastor there for a year and a half. Um, explored getting ordained there, uh, and my the, the pastor who kind of mentored me in that said, I don't know if this is the place for you because of everything that has happened in the Methodist church since. Uh, he kind of saw it on the horizon of that fight that was going to go on, and, and he knew my theology and said, I, I just don't know that this is going to be a, a place for you. Um, so then I ran back to, to my Mennonite roots and said, well, I'm going to get ordained as a, a Mennonite pastor. Um, the problem was is that as a Mennonite, you have to serve in a church in order to get ordained. So you have to get that job before you can get ordained. And um, while there are very liberal Mennonite churches, for the most part, they tend towards the conservative. And so I couldn't find a place that would hire me. Um, and so then I kind of took ordination off the table for a while and did a bunch of different things. I serviced ATMs for a while and worked at a thrift store and tried to figure out what it was that I wanted to do with this seminary degree and, and where I would be welcome. Um, and I moved back to Denver in 2017 and started attending an American Baptist church that was uh, welcoming and affirming. Um, and one of the pastors there, she is part of a smaller denomination that's an offshoot of the American Baptists that is called the Alliance of Baptists. Um, and so I started talking with her about ordination, the process of ordination at that church there, and the process of ordination in the Alliance of Baptists. Um, and ended up, I actually just got ordained December 8th uh, up at that church uh, as part of and my exploration, and that was a denomination that was home for me. Um, it took the peace and justice influence of the Mennonite church and focused on that and focused on um, that, that welcoming attitude. Um, and so when I came down here, actually, this, uh, when I say that I'm ordained Baptist, people are often associate it with Southern Baptist or more conservative Baptist uh, churches. Uh, the American Baptist is a more liberal end. You have kind of a wide gamut in the American Baptist church from conservative to, to liberal. Uh, and then the Alliance of Baptist is an even more liberal offshoot. And so this is a place that feels very safe to me as far as my exploration of theology um, and who I believe that the, the divine is. Um, and as part of that, I also, so I have all of that background, all of that baggage of four, you know, generations of pastors and all that, uh, my parents went through and my grandparents went through, um, and 
because of that, I was like, I don't know if this traditional pastoral ministry is part of what I want to do. And so I started exploring um, hospital chaplaincy because, again, that's a place where I get to go and meet people and hear their stories and hear how they make meaning in life, whatever that is, you know, and that's kind of the idea of spirituality that I've come to is that we all have spiritualities. We all have these things that give us meaning in life, whatever they may be. Um, and I much prefer that. I much prefer hearing that, that story and, and hearing how people make meaning or f- hearing how people have had struggle finding meaning because of religious experience that has told them that they can only find meaning in this certain way or whatever that is. And so hospital chaplaincy just seemed like a natural fit of a place where I can go and still have all of these questions about faith and spirituality um, and where that isn't going to be challenged. Whereas as a pastor, especially in Christian tradition, there's an expectation of certainty. Um, and I'm not real comfortable with certainty. <laughs> I'm not certain about a whole lot, so. <laughs> Thank you. I find that story inspiring, and I just, I appreciate you sharing it with the larger group. Yeah. No, I just wanted to share a story. I got a phone call once from a husband of someone I sing with in Choral Society. And um, he was like, I am so excited. You know, I was so excited to understand more about what you mean by you know the unitarian universalist thing and i've gone to christian churches and i just never have liked that i'm right you're wrong and it's so cool and i'm like yeah cool it'd be great to have you come and blah blah blah. and then he's like but then i was reading about this welcoming congregation thing and i'm like yep (laughs) and he said i'm not sure i'm on board with that and i'm like "Uh (laughs) uh-huh and i said well you can come too (laughs) and I left it at that he didn't come so I must not have been quite welcoming enough but um, I thought that was interesting it was an opportunity to practice hospitality Um, quick question so you were talking about Amos Young is Mm -hmm. that right Mm -hmm. like as in Young Y-O-N-G correct okay just making sure I found the right thing yeah Yeah, and his most recent book is called Hospitality and the Other. That's the one that I I referenced in there. And for any of you that were too afraid to ask about my socks because they're kind (laughs) of wild, they're from my niece. I got them for Christmas. They're they're my monster socks. Uh, So I know they're a little bit wild, but... (laughs) We we welcome wild socks. (laughs) Certificate of the Welcoming Congregation. It's a program that we're certified. We're actually certified through. Well, it's that and it's welcoming in general. <laughs> I um, So the LGBTQ social justice team here at the fellowship, I am a member of that team, um, as are a number of other folks. And um, I, I kind of think of it as like welcoming with a capital W and welcoming with a little W. Like, of course, the word welcome means welcome in general. And um, we twice have gone through a really comprehensive, um, now even way more detailed process to get uh, certified as a welcoming congregation specifically for LGBTQ plus folks. Um, and we just received our most recent certification 
within the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I want to say beginning of January. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the renewal process was changed significantly at the national UU level. So, um, yeah. So we just finished our renewal process. Yay. Yep. <laughs> okay, we're, we're running over. This is the last, last one. Whenever that certificate is mentioned, I can't help but say I did um, Unitarian Youth Group youth work for 20 years, and I looked at that certificate one day, and there was the name of my most challenging challenging youth ever. <laughs> and he, he signed that certificate after becoming a UUA um, staff in that realm. <laughs> All right, everyone. <laughs> Thank you so much, Reverend Jacob, for being here. Thank, Thank you, you all for joining you for our discussion. Somebody's ringing the bell. Someone's knocking at the door. Somebody's ringing the bell. Do me a favor. Open the door. Let them in.